2: KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Atmospheric warming, catastrophic sea level rise and mass extinction are just some of the monumental harms humans have inflicted on the planet. Pulitzer Prize-winning science writer Elizabeth Colbert points out that the damage is so extensive, we may need to apply even more human intervention to address the environmental harms we've caused. In her new book, Under a White Sky, Colbert looks at some of those interventions, including geoengineering and gene editing. We'll talk to her about her reporting and whether the answer to the problem of our control of nature is, in fact, more control. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Have our human-caused environmental problems gotten so bad that we're past the point of letting things be, that our salvation may actually depend on intervening in nature even more than before? Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Sixth Extinction, Elizabeth Colbert, has looked at some of the interventions being proposed for environmental harms, from modifying toad genes to the frightening prospect of having to throw particles into the sky to address global warming— But as she shows us in her new book titled Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, our past record on attempts to control nature isn't great. Elizabeth Goldberg, thanks so much for
3: joining us on Forum. Oh, thanks for having me.
2: Your book opens with an attempt at controlling nature gone awry. It takes us to the Great Lakes Basin. Water managers there are struggling to contain the invasive carp this fish that were deliberately introduced to sewage treatment ponds in the 70s to feed on damaging aquatic weeds. At the time, you write that it was heralded as an eco-friendly intervention because you used fish to control weeds instead of toxic pesticides. But can you tell us, or herbicides, can you tell us what happened after that, though?
3: Sure. So so this, um, the animal you're you're talking about is 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 referred to as as asian carp as if it's sort of one species but in fact you know for for better or worse it's actually it's actually four separate species um which were imported as you say in this in the 60s and 70s um to accomplish different tasks uh different forms of of what's referred to as biocontrol so one species as you mentioned was imported in an effort to try to control aquatic weeds without throwing a lot of chemicals, herbicides into lakes and ponds. Um, Two species were brought in to try to deal with this sort of nutrient loading that comes from inadequate sewage treatment plants. Um, And one species was probably imported um, because it it ate um, mollusks and sort of fish um, you know, aquaculture ponds, and all of these were attempts to, you know, do ironically, or, or yeah, I guess ironically is a good word. Um, Rachel Carson's *Silent Spring* had just recently come out, and the last chapter of of that book talks about the alternatives to chemicals, pesticides, and herbicides, and really touts this idea of of biocontrol we should try to find out what the natural enemies of you know an unwanted insect or unwanted uh, plant is and 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 you know br- use those but and you know that's that sounds environmentally benign and certainly right. um you know rachel carson meant it such but uh, unfortunately the record here and even when you think of it the very idea is is pretty problematic because you know moving species around the world has been, actually, really truly one of the greatest uh, drivers of extinction, um, and you know doing it to control another species, even if you don't like the original pest species, has a pretty pretty mixed record at this point.
2: So, what impact now are these carp? having on the ecosystem and the great Lakes basin, on on people even i mean you write about some of these carp like knocking people off jet skis and things like that
3: yeah so the, so the so the original carp mostly were introduced you know down south they were um they had you know very specific tasks to do and some of them weren't even introduced they were just in like you know fish raising stations, but they very, very quickly got out as these tiny little fingerlings, they're called. Um, you know, they can get through any very fine mesh. And they were very, very successful. very, very successful too. Um, especially these these two species that are, or, or really one of the two species that are, are what's called filter feeders. And they, that just means that they suck in a lot of water and they have these combs behind their gills and they rake out whatever little plants that are, are, are in the water column. And so they're just very, they're able to rake out very, very tiny particles and grow to very large sizes. And they've just taken over these waterways, um, you know, in the, in the southern U.S. and all the way now into the Midwestern U.S. And they're moving through all of these tributaries of the Mississippi. And in Some there are some tributaries of Mississippi now where they make up something like 90% of all biomass. So they have really um, pushed aside. I don't think that there's any species yet that they have, you know, driven to extinction, but they've really displaced a lot of the native fish in the system. And another uh, critical critical thing is that uh, one of these species as I mentioned it's it's mollusks and the southeastern US has an abundance uh, is very rich in species of mollusks um, that many of which are highly endangered because of ways that we've you know treated the water or diverted the water and now you're bringing in this, Fish, this enormous fish that eats mollusks, and you're putting it in this in these ecosystems where you already have a lot of endangered mollusks. So you know you you can do the math on that.
2: Some of the interventions underway or under discussion were amazing. I mean, of course, you talk about the electric electrification of the river. I mean, can you explain this and what you saw?
3: Sure. So so the the that chapter of the book or the whole book actually begins with a trip down this man-made waterway called the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal. And the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal was built um, back at the turn of the 20th century to solve a big problem. And that big problem was that Chicago had grown up along the banks of the Chicago River which it used to dump all of its waste into. So all of its human waste and all of the waste from the enormous stockyards in Chicago. And the Chicago River at that point ran east into Lake Michigan. And Chicago also took its water and still takes its drinking water from Lake Michigan. So once again, you can really see that we're on a collision course here. Um, And there's a lot of waterborne disease in Chicago. So it was decided that something really had to be done Uh, to fix this problem. And the fix that they came up with was this enormous engineering project which literally reversed the flow of the Chicago River. And they did that by digging this canal that then connected uh, the Chicago River to the Mississippi River system, which it should not be connected to. (laughs) It should be running into Lake Michigan. Um, And that sort of opened up this interesting sort of wormhole between the Great Lakes Basin and the Mississippi basin, these two great drainage basins of North America, which had been separate. And that, no one sort of intended that, no one was thinking about it, no one was thinking about how that would really upend the biology of those two systems. But then over the course of the 20th century, as both of these water systems became really highly invaded uh, with Asian carp and many, many other species, you know, it's too many for me to name, um, people, which were wreaking havoc in both systems, people decided, well, we don't want the ones, the species that are wreaking havoc in the Great Lakes to get into the Mississippi, and we don't want the Mississippi species, particularly Asian corp, to get into the Great Lakes. And so people, you know, scratched their heads, what can we do? And it was assigned to the Army Corps of Engineers to come up with a solution. And what the Army Corps of Engineers came up with which you know, sounds almost crazy, but it is actually existent, is a series of electric barriers. They pulse water into this canal, I mean, pulse electricity and a lot of electricity uh, into this waterway in the hopes of dissuading any fish that runs into this electrical field from continuing on. And in, I actually, you know, have taken a boat over these electric barriers and these huge signs do not, you know, keep your kids and your pets with you, don't go into the water, because uh, it's quite possible that if you do, you know, you will end up dead.
2: Wow. (laughs) I mean, electrifying a river to the point where people could be electrocuted if they go in there, they've hired these carp contract killers to try to stop these massive populations of carp. You introduce this chapter by saying that Rivers make great metaphors. Can you explain what you mean by this?
3: Well, we we use, um, you know, rivers in literature. And I, I mentioned a, a couple of examples um, of, of very famous passages in, you know, Twain and Conrad, where the river, the journey up or down the river means, stands for, for, are coming, coming into knowledge or coming to know something that you don't want to know. Um, and that's sort of a, a play, obviously, on, you know, the fact that the chapter also begins with a river that's not really a river. It's, a, it's sort of a fake river. Um, and it, it also has a kind of metaphorical significance in the, in the context of the book.
2: But it also, in many ways, this whole example that involves a river really illustrates how well-intentioned interventions turn out to have catastrophic consequences.
3: Yeah, no, I mean that that is exactly <laughs> that is very well put. That's exactly, you know, what what it what it illustrates and I think it illustrates you know, the metaphorical significance of, of of the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal, this sort of fake river we're on, which has been, you know, reversed and electrified and abused in various ways, um, is that we are on this, you know, this journey, this journey with a very, very unclear uh, ending. How's that?
2: Yes, a journey with an unclear ending. And, uh, you know, if we look back at some of our past examples, I think the question is, Are we equipped uh, to handle that journey? Are we learning from these kinds of, of past mistakes? We're talking to New Yorker staff writer, Elizabeth Colbert, about her new book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. It looks at whether the damage humans have inflicted on the planet is far enough past the point of no return that the only way to mitigate it is more human intervention. What do you think? And what are your your reactions to what you've been hearing so far? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking to New Yorker staff writer Elizabeth Colbert about her new book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. And you can join our conversation by calling 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, our email address forum at kqed.org. Elizabeth Colbert, you've called your new book a logical sequence to your Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Sixth Extinction, which looked at the devastating impact humans have had on the planet to the extent that we're driving the largest mass extinction of Earth's species since an asteroid struck and killed off the dinosaurs. In what way is Under a White Sky a sequel to that book?
3: Well, I, I guess because... After I wrote that book, you know, I started to think about, okay, what, what, are, what are we going to do here? Um, you know, we're changing the world in very dramatic ways, um, you know, as, as scientists would say, sort of on a geological scale, we have now become a geological force. And we're, we're realizing that some of the impacts of that, in fact, a lot of the impacts of that Uh, we don't care for. Um, And how are we going to respond to that? And so this this current book, Under White Sky, really asks that question, how are we going to respond to the dawning knowledge that our own actions are, you know, endangering a lot of other creatures, countless other species? And, And also increasingly, I think people understand you know, ourselves are certainly are the way of life that we enjoy right now.
2: And when you're talking about some of these examples or the ways that we've tried to intervene and the things that we're proposing to intervene even more to deal with the problems caused by our previous interventions, mm-hmm. you you really try not to take a position on what's being proposed or what's happening even as we speak.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think. Um, I went out into the world. Um, I took a lot of, you know, really fascinating journeys um, to, you know, not just down the Chicago, Chicago, Sanitary and Ship Canal, but to Australia and to Iceland and to, you know, to meet with people who are proposed things that you could describe as, as brilliant, or you could describe as terrifying, you know, one or the other. And both, I think are really valid, um, reactions. And I will be frank and say my own, you know, I'm ambivalent about a lot of them myself when, you know, one minute I say, well, that, you know, we're, we, we need to do that. That's smart. And another minute I might say, well, that that's just crazy. You know? So I, I think I, I don't want to prescribe anyone's, you know, response, but I think both of those are, are really valid responses to what's going on because we are in a very, um, very difficult Uh, situation, you know, to which it responds to which you could argue there are really no right answers anymore.
2: Well, let me go to caller Bill in Napa. Hi, Bill, join us.
4: Hi, thanks for taking the call. Um, I recently, a couple years ago, got a certificate in permaculture design. I'm very interested in history of permaculture and success stories in this regard, where we work with the, the web of life rather than trying to fight it. And a particular a story that I find fascinating is the Amazon. For a long time, everyone said the Amazon was this wild place that developed on its own. If we just leave nature alone, everything's great. In fact, recent studies have shown that the biodiversity of the Amazon is from humans working with and augmenting the web of life. And in fact, the soil, there's a, there are pockets of very rich soil that's been growing on its own for 500 years called terra pietra, those soil processes, what we would call today permaculture processes, were initiated by human beings. And and those human beings were unfortunately killed off by Western disease by and large. So we have these processes that have been going on for 500 years, implemented by human or initiated by human activity that have actually been acting as a carbon sink, helping buffer the problems we've been creating. So there are definitely real examples of success stories. And I think it, it, it makes sense to try to build on those and learn from those in addition to looking at the mistakes.
2: Bill, thanks. Uh, your reaction, Elizabeth Colbert?
3: You know, I, I certainly agree that it absolutely makes sense for us to look at, you know, very long lasting uh, cultures and how they um, survived and interacted with you know what? What, for lack of a better word, we'll call the natural world. Now, I think where I think the conversation gets pretty tricky is, you know, when people were, you know, indigenous groups which still live and 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 farm in a certain way in 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 the Amazon basin. You know, we over the last you know 500 years, really over the last 200 years, you know, the human population has. Um, grown enormously, right? So we don't have the luxury on some level of just replicating what people used to do when, let's say, there were, you know, maybe a billion people on the planet because uh, just among other things, I'll just mention one um, limiting factor here, you know, we uh, in the early 20th century, nitrogen fertilizers were invented and nitrogen fertilizers, you know, there's a lot of nitrogen on planet earth, but it's it's generally tied up in the air in ways that plants can't utilize. And when they, we invented nitrogen fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer, we really, really vastly increased the amount of food we could grow. Uh, and many of us, something like 3 billion people are alive today, it's been calculated, because of nitrogen fertilizers. So we can't just say now, oh, let's go back to the days you know, before nitrogen fertilizers, even though we know that nitrogen fertilizers uh, have a lot of impacts that we don't like. For example, you know, the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico is a, is a function that opens up every summer, is a function of nitrogen fertilizer running down the Mississippi River and into the Gulf of Nex- Mexico. Um, so, you know, that's, a, that's an obvious bad impact that we don't care for, uh, but we can't, as I say, just suddenly say, okay, no more nitrogen fertilizer. Um, And I I just don't think it's realistic, I'm going to be frank, to say, well, we're going to go back to, you know, farming the way that they farmed 500 years ago, because there are just too many of us, there are too many mouths to feed.
2: And is that what you mean when you talk about how not intervening can be in itself an intervention?
3: Well, I think what I I mean by that (laughs) is that we, um, you know, we've really radically changed things already. Um, we may not realize it because, you know, we all are here and in a certain moment in time, and we see what's around us and the way we live now as, you know, just sort of ordinary and natural. But one of the real points that I'm trying to get through in the book is there's there's nothing ordinary about this moment. It's an extraordinary moment where yes. one species is changing the entire globe on a basically a permanent uh, basis. So Even if we stopped, for example, emitting carbon, uh, we have have already changed the climate. Um, If we stopped intervening on behalf of a lot of species that are threatened, uh, they wouldn't bounce back in a lot of cases, they would be done in by the same, by the forces that we're not trying to hold back. So we are sort of enmeshed in this system and it's very difficult um, to know what the right answer is in terms of going forward.
2: I want to talk with you about another intervention that you wrote about. Uh, and this one was also to control an invasive species in Australia, the cane toad. And this time, one of the solutions being pursued to control the damage is to genetically modify using CRISPR or gene editing technology, the toad.
3: Yeah. So that that's a, a great story. And, you know, uh, uh, you know really a sort of very dark comedy um so cane toads were you know introduced into australia as you mentioned in another you know ill-fated effort at biocontrol um they were introduced with the idea that they were going to eat these beetles that were feeding off of sugar cane which was a big crop in northeastern australia still is and um they, they didn't do that. They're native they're, These toads are native to South America and Central America. And what's important to know about them is a, they're huge. Um, they're often mistaken for boulders. They're so big and B they're highly toxic. And so Australia, so they did really, really well. They probably did nothing for the sugar cane, but they themselves really thrive. Um, they had no natural predators and they, uh, spread they just spread throughout australia all along the coast they sort of, sort of just circumnavigate australia and they're still spreading they continue to increase their range every year and what happened was uh, the australia's native wildlife which is a really fascinating and unique fauna that evolved you know in australia which was cut off from the rest of the world for you know many millions of years um they had no toads in Australia, and they and they certainly had no toxic toads. So, it had all these creatures that were not had no evolutionary history with toads, and just you know saw saw the cane toad as something yummy to eat, bit into it, and died from these toxins. Mm-hmm. And so um, now the question is, how can we save some of these species that are now very, you know, their numbers have have dramatically plunged. Um, And one idea is, can we train them not to eat toads? And so what these scientists were doing at this highly biosecure facility that I went to visit was they had tinkered with the genes of um, some toads in a way that made them less toxic. And their their thinking was, well, if we feed these to, to these native animals, they will associate toads with you know sickness They'll, they will feel ill but they will not die because these toads will be less toxic so that was the idea there but you can take this in a lot of different directions you could also try to manipulate the genes of the toads so that they can't reproduce and that's something that's probably on the horizon
2: and of course then you take it further to this question of should we be doing that i i mean who should be deciding whether we should modify or even potentially eradicate a species.
3: Yeah. The questions are, you know, enormous. And I think they are going to be attract more and more attention and more and more discussion. They certainly should um, because we are getting really, really good. I and mean, by we, I don't mean me. Um, although as part of the book, I did you know buy a gene editing kit, which was kind of freakish um, that allowed me to genetically engineer some bacteria to be antibiotic resistant and which I believe I successfully, you know, accomplished, which is kind of wild. Um, and that's a, that's actually a firm based out in, in, in California that will sell you that kit. You can go online. Um, and, uh, you know, we're getting really, really good. CRISPR is I really, I think anyone who works in the field of genetics will tell you is, is a game changer. Um, it's, it's just, you know, we've been able to genetically modify organisms for, you know, several decades now. But what CRISPR does is it just takes it to a new level, It makes it much easier, cheaper, faster, and already extraordinary things have been done using CRISPR.
2: We're talking to Pulitzer Prize winning science writer, Elizabeth Colbert. Her new book is Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, and it looks at whether the damage humans have inflicted on the planet is far enough past the point of no return that uh, the way to mitigate it is more human intervention. What are your reactions to what you're hearing? Does the idea of using technology like gene editing to help solve our ecological problems reassure you, frighten you? Is no intervention worse than intervention? Call us at 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. A listener writes, the John McPhee book, The Control of Nature, written a couple of decades ago, also profiles failures to control nature, such as routing the Mississippi River and guiding mud flows after after wildfires in Southern California. Namiko writes, what do you think about the current winter storm hitting the U.S. and the record below average temperatures in Texas as it relates to climate change and lack of preparedness? It feels like the climate crisis is no longer something in the future, but is actually happening now. For example, wildfires here in California are the new normal.
5: Elizabeth Colbert,
2: what's happening in Texas? What has been your reaction to that and how it's been playing out?
3: Well, I I mean, to start with wildfires in California, wildfires in California are, you know, quite clearly being, you know, the wildfire situation is quite quite clearly getting worse owing to climate change. There are, you know, other factors that have also uh, contributed to very bad, you know, record-breaking wildfire season after record-breaking <laughs> wildfire season, but climate change is you know, clearly the through line here. And so that should be, you know, very, very sobering to people. Now, what's happening in um, Texas is a a freak weather pattern that I think scientists would probably say, you know, probably does have a climate change fingerprint on it. And what it has revealed um, in that particular case is the lack, you know, I don't know how generally applicable this is, but it, it you know, pe- I'm sure people have been reading about it—the lack of resiliency of the text of the grid in Texas, which is kind of the electrical grid, which is, for complicated and weird reasons, sort of cut off from the rest of the country's electrical grid. Now, the lesson at the heart of it, though, um, is that climate change is going to throw a lot of curveballs at us, and we better start thinking very hard and investing uh, significantly in. St- structures that are going to be resilient to this kind of, or we're going to see these rolling crises, you know, every uh, other week.
2: Well, let me go to caller Denise in San Francisco. Hi, Denise.
6: Oh, hi. Yes, I have a message of hope, and it about, it's about acting locally. So anyone can plant local native plants, which support bees, butterflies, and birds, and we know their populations are crashing, and only in recent decades have we noticed this. So, birds eat insects for protein, and insects um, need the plants that they co-evolved with, because each plant has its own natural toxins, natural defenses, and the insects need uh, uh, the insects need no local native plants because they're adapted; they evolved uh, to defeat the plant's natural defenses. Okay, so whether uh, it's on private property or public property, anyone can plant local native plants. And speaking of acting locally, you can uh, advocate with your government officials and um, business owners to say, you know, non-native plants aren't helping. We can help to give habitat and food back to our local wildlife. Thank you.
2: Yeah, Denise, thank you. I mean, there are a lot of things that we can and should be doing, Elizabeth Colbert. But where are we right now? Uh, You're writing this book. You're talking about some pretty incredible large-scale interventions and raising the question, if if that's where we're at at the moment, uh, that it, it has to be a lot more dramatic than it's been.
3: Well, I mean I, I do want to address the point, you know, of acting locally, which I certainly, you know, applaud and I certainly agree that you know, planting native species when you can uh, is 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 a great idea and important and maybe, you know, one of the you know, single best things that you could do to support the local ecosystem. But I also think that we have to be realistic. Uh, about the scale of the issues that we're discussing and the forces that we've set in motion. Um, and so with something like insect decline, which is a topic I've written about in, in, independently of this, you know, there are big, big, big forces at work here. And I don't think, I think planting native species is, is great and important and may make a difference, but I don't think it's going to solve the problem.
2: Well, we'll have more with Elizabeth Colbert after the break. Again, her new book is Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. And we'll talk about why it is titled that coming right up. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum.
5: We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with New Yorker staff writer Elizabeth Colbert about her new book, Under a White Sky The Nature of the Future. And you, our listeners, are with us at 866 733 6786. Again, 866 733 6786. Our email address, Forum at KQED.org, Twitter, and Facebook, we're at KQED Forum. And Elizabeth Colbert, I want to talk to you about solar geoengineering, which I really didn't know very much about until I read your book. First, can you talk about? This technology, how it's supposed to work.
3: Sure. So, you know, I I want to start by saying, on some level, it isn't a technology yet; it's more an idea. So, um, so we don't need to panic quite yet. Yeah. Um, It's an it's an idea that's actually been kicking around for a surprisingly long time. One of the things I learned um, in writing the book was it was sort of first proposed by a Russian uh scientist in this in the 70s um right around the same time that you know climate change was sort of coming into in, in people scientists were beginning to warn about the dangers of climate change they jumped right to geo- geoengineering and let me explain what solar geoengineering is it's this idea that um we you know by pouring co2 into the air we are we are warming the earth that is um you know beyond dispute at this point um and one of the real um, problems for dealing with, with climate change, one of the daunting challenges, is that carbon dioxide is not like a lot of pollutants that we put up into the air. For example, you know, let's say soot or these fine particulate particulates that you know cause serious lung disease. And if you if you or, or you know what what we would call smog, so you know California. You know, decided it, it it wanted to, or the whole U.S. decided you wanted to cut down on on smog, and you know we we mandated catalytic converters and things like that, and that dissipated. That problem dissipated um, over time and pretty quickly. But carbon dioxide stays up there for a long time. Um, you know, on a human lifetime scale, for all intents and purposes, forever. And so even once you stop emitting co2 which we're certainly nowhere near doing at this point you still have all of that stuff up in the air and it's still going to continue to warm the earth and melt the ice etc and if you want to do something quickly if you get a climate and you say well this is just un- unsupportable it's a humanitarian crisis uh, or it-, it affects agriculture very seriously um there's not much you can do about it quickly you know, because that CO2 is up there. So the only idea that people have come up with for dealing with it, doing something quickly is counteracting, you know, one intervention in the atmosphere, which is all this carbon with another intervention in the stratosphere. And that would consist of pouring, spraying, I guess you'd say um, some kind of reflective material in the stratosphere. So it could be sulfur dioxide, or it could be people are proposed calcium carbonate um, sort of, you know, the, the details have not been worked out because, you know, it's never been done or tried in any way. Um, but the theory is you, you, you put this stuff in the stratosphere, it would sort of create the stratospheric haze. Um, and that would bounce sunlight back to space, reflect sunlight back away from the Earth and reduce the amount of direct sunlight hitting the Earth. And that would have a cooling effect. And the theory comes from is, you know, it's pretty robust because this is actually what happens after major volcanic eruptions. We, volcanoes pour a lot of sulfur dioxide into the, into the atmosphere. And, you know, if they're powerful enough into the stratosphere that floats around um, and bounces sunlight back to space, we get these fantastic sunsets after a volcanic eruption. um, And we also get, Measurable global cooling. So after Mount Pinatubo, you know, erupted, scientists very carefully measured the impacts, and we saw, you know, a year or so of lower temperatures.
2: A side effect of this, which is the title of your book, is that we would change the appearance of the sky; that it would no longer be blue. Essentially,
3: <laughs> well, if you, if you put enough of this stuff up there, you know, that's that's changing the way light light is is being you know, refracted and reflected. Um calculations done by scientists have suggested that it would change the appearance of the sky. The sky would appear to be whiter. And so that is the title of the of this of the book, Under a White Sky. So if you went, you know, if you were if you were doing serious solar geoengineering, you went to a part of the world where today um, you would expect to see a bright blue sky on a on a clear day. The sky would look you know, whitish. And now we we do see, have that already. I want to say you know in sort of polluted urban centers where we never see you know a bright blue sky.
2: Your New Yorker colleague Bill McKibben wrote yesterday that I know the technology as you said, and thank you for correcting me, isn't exactly there. But that an advisory committee is expected to issue a decision on this request from Harvard to test a flight platform or something like that that might be used to do these sulfur particle injections into the stratosphere? And he wrote that it is an ominous moment in the planet's history that that we're doing that and one we should back away from now. Um, and then at the same time, I was struck by this and by one of the geoengineering experts that you spoke to who said, we live in a world where deliberately dimming the sun might be less risky than not doing it. I mean, I'm sure this is still, again, you know, out there, but did you have any reservations about including this in your book or did you hear from anybody who said maybe you shouldn't include this in your book?
3: (laughs) Well, I think that the, you know, the chapter in the book um, makes it clear that this is a, well, I hope it does at least, you know, this is a, you know, as Bill says, this is an ominous moment. Uh, in our history it's an ominous moment in our history where you know very smart people say doing this may be less dangerous than not doing it um but i don't think you know there is a school of thought that even talking about it is dangerous i think that that um you know is probably not the way a healthy democracy works how's that if there is um you know but I, but you know, but yeah. I do understand. I do understand why the impulses just don't even go there. So I, I, I am sympathetic to that.
2: Well, let me bring in caller Jay from Pleasanton. Hi, Jay.
7: Well, hi. Uh, thank you, Nina, for taking my call and great conversation. That, that last topic is actually the perfect segue to my question, which is this. You alluded to this earlier, but. Human beings have historically been really, really good at figuring out how to do things. In fact, I guess that's arguably what humanity is best at, is figuring out how to do stuff. But we haven't been very good historically at coming up with the ethical and regulatory infrastructure, if you will, as a species to ask and decide whether we should do stuff like this. Um, lots of examples of unintended consequences of things. Uh, and I'm just wondering, are we any better as a species, as we get really good at figuring out how to do stuff, are we any better? Is the, is the ethical infrastructure and the regulatory infrastructure on asking some, whether we should do these things hmm. getting any better than it's ever been? Like Thank a,
2: you. Like a body in terms of examining the ethics, Elizabeth Colbert?
3: I mean, I think that's a really good question. And and certainly there are many, many, you know, academic fora and, you know, NGOs uh, that are looking at how we might go about (laughs) establishing, you know, frameworks for looking at these issues. But the fact is, you know, life goes on and science and technology proceed a lot faster then maybe our ability to to think things through. Um, so that's that's one you know very key issue. And and as I say, a lot of people are thinking about it. Um, but I don't know that anyone has an answer for it at this point. Um, and then there's also the question with some of these technologies, or maybe maybe a lot of them really. You know, um, they're either going to be governed at a national level, or quite possibly not at all. You know, I mean, I I created you know bacterial antibiotic resistant um you know bacteria in my kitchen now i don't i couldn't have done it on my own but you know there are a lot of biohackers out there who can and so you know you could have the best regulatory framework in the world um and are but are you going to prevent certain things from happening uh even so.
2: Well, actually, uh, a listener, Stephen, writes Did I hear Elizabeth correctly that someone is selling a kit to allow you to create an antibiotic resistant bacteria? Isn't that incredibly dangerous for a society? So, you know, bringing up what you are talking about, did you have to do anything special to get that <laughs> kit? <laughs>
3: No, you can go online and order it. Uh, And I'm not going to mention exactly who I ordered it from because I don't want to be like an advertisement here, but you, you too could order it. And I will say, um, and this is a key point. It was a, you know, non-pathogenic strain of bacteria. So, you know, there shouldn't have been any problem with this. Although I was advised at the end of this to, you know, kill them all off with bleach, which I did in fact do, but I use it as an example, really, um, of, you know, how uh, people who are much more talented than I am and who have better resources, you know, could obviously do things that are very sophisticated and, and, you know, this is, you know, it's a huge, all of these things are huge risks for bioterrorism, et cetera, and they're also potentially risks for just, you know, screw-ups, you know, you don't have to be a bioterrorist to just you know, screw something up. So, you know, we are definitely in, um, you know, I don't want to say sci-fi territory because it's it's our reality.
2: Mark and Berkeley join us. Hi, Mark.
7: Hi. Uh, yeah, I was wondering uh, if you knew about the status of uh, projects involving removing carbon from the air, such as
6: carbon sequestration.
3: Where are we th- with those projects, Elizabeth Colbert? Sure. So I—that's a chapter in the book. Um, I went to Iceland um, in the book to actually, I say somewhat jokingly, but not entirely, vi- visit my own emissions. I had paid a company that has a ca- capture unit um, that sucks CO2 out of the air, and then in in at this plant in Iceland, they pump it deep underground where there's volcanic rock that reacts with the CO2, and it actually mineralizes deep underground. So that's kind of an amazing story. And, you know, we we do know how to capture CO2 from the air. That is pretty, you know, on some level pretty as, you know, it's not rocket science, as they say. Um, but the, the um, obstacle here or the challenge here is that we're putting up so much CO2, you know, tens of billions of tons per year, that to make an appreciable difference in what's up there, you know, you, you have to then capture also billions of tons per year. Um, and that's a very, very big challenge, you know, capturing uh, a few pounds or even a couple tons or even many tons, that's that, that can be done. We know how to do that. But capturing billions of tons, now, you know, it's like, now you're talking about real money.
2: Elizabeth Colbert's new book is Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This listener writes, The driving force of climate change and environmental degradation is overconsumption. Over-reliance on technology solutions instead of reducing the human footprint on Earth just kicks the bucket down the road. Janet writes, This conversation is driving me, an engineer and climate activist, completely nuts. Stop it already. Stop unnecessary jet travel. Clean up transportation. Stop overbuilding. Stop buying stuff. We don't need listening or seeing those comments coming in, Elizabeth Colbert. One of the things that I think about is underlying some of these sort of radical proposals or potential interventions. I, I do feel like is the sad fact that we have done so little to address the climate crisis despite decades of warmth, despite decades of, of, of warming. So basically that changing our own destructive behavior is too hard and that we may potentially need things like this.
3: Yeah, no, I, I, can I say, I, I completely agree with the the person who wrote that we need to, you know, we should be very, very dramatically looking very, you know, at, at at our own consumption habits. Absolutely. I completely agree with that, but are we, you know, uh, I would have to say the evidence is not very good on that. As you say, despite decades of warning, in fact, you know, we the world as a whole uh, emissions in the U.S. have been, you know, sort of flattish, but the world as a whole they've increased very dramatically. Half of all the CO2 that has been emitted into the atmosphere has been emitted since 1990, since at a point where you know the warnings were already pretty stark about what was going to happen. Um, and so our, our track record isn't good. Our track record at controlling ourselves isn't good. And our track record at um, these interventions is also quite mixed. So, you know, which way are we, you know, choose your poison, which way are we going to go? I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, this book is, you know, I know this is going to sound, you know, odd given these are really, really heavy topics, but but the book is supposed to be, kind of a dark comedy it's supposed to be funny um and looking at these issues you know we're in kind of an absurd situation um and you know we trying to have some fun with that i, I don't i don't have the answer yes yeah. obviously we be doing. there's a lot of things we should be doing that we're not doing
2: well i admit i did laugh out loud at points <laughs> in your book so. thank you thank you <laughs> let me go to james in richmond quickly hi james let's see if we can squeeze you in here
8: Oh, thank you so much. Um, Hi Mina and thank you for this awesome conversation. Um, I, I what I had to say it was related to um a carbon sequestration thing. So I'll just get your book and read it. Um, but what <laughs> Excellent, I, I am, great uh, idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh my my concern is really just kind of on the bigger question. Um, yeah, that I think the answer, and I appreciate that you don't try to have an answer, um, is that we really just need to radically do less, mm. and, um, and that it's really hard to imagine um, for a lot of people, and that I, um, you know, that the what you're talking about is basically, uh, you know, like we, we're facing a population spike because we discovered carbon resources, and we're now facing the consequences, and that. What happens after a spike is usually the spike collapses. Um, So I feel like people should be, um, you know, taking the time like we're doing now to appreciate their families and get to know their communities and build skills together to survive what we don't know.
2: Uh, James, thanks. I don't know if you have a reaction to James, but also since we're just coming up on about a minute left, wondering, too, I know you don't take a stance on on the things that you write about in this book, but I do wonder what you did find most heartening or inspiring as you were reporting for it.
3: Well, one of the chapters that we haven't really touched on in this conversation, which was a really a lot of fun and, and was very inspiring, was visiting um the devil's hole pupfish in the middle of the mojave which is one of the rarest species in the world um this little tiny fish that exists only in one pool in the middle of the mojave and i went out with a group of scientists from the fish and wildlife service and national park service who have kept this very rare and endangered fish uh, from going extinct and that was um a really quite an amazing experience and the and devil's hole which is this canyon that has a pool sort of beautiful pool at the bottom of it where where this little fish lives that was all published so that was that was that was probably the most inspiring experience
2: i'm glad you mentioned that there really are a lot of incredibly committed people who are doing this and i want to thank you as well elizabeth colbert for your book
3: Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me on.
2: New Yorker staff writer, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, science writer Elizabeth Colbert, her new book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. Thanks, Susan Britton, for producing today's segment. Forum is also produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauberg, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Mandy Wynn, and Grace One. Our senior editor, Dan Zoll, engineers Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin, interns Leslie Torres and Kimia Akbari. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.